This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Like the Kokako, the saddleback or tieke belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Welcome back to Community or Chaos, hopefully more community than chaos. Today we have with us the James Cockle, not James Shaw, but James Cockle. And he is a Green who's standing against James Shaw for the co-leadership of the Green Party. You can um, get the podcast for this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast, then going to Community or Chaos. So a day or two, very shortly, you should be able to podcast this program if you miss part of it. Well, James, welcome. James Cockle, welcome to uh, Community or Chaos. Hi, Marvin. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Can you tell us why you are uh, contesting the leadership of the Green Party? Well, it's because I believe that the party has been going in the wrong direction, and I'm, I'm really concerned. I think that we have um, the, the current leadership has is pulling us towards the centre, and so what I'm what I'm aiming to do by standing against the leader is to pull the party back towards the left, rather than going for the the voters uh, the the soft labour support. I want to be standing up for the poor and working people of this country and for the environment, the people and the planet. All right. Why did you originally join? Why did you originally join the Green Party, and when? Well, I originally joined back in the early two thousands, um, and I had been a long time supporter. I'd voted for the Green Party. I was one of the first among my friends to be a Green Party supporter, and I, I, now they're all all supporters as well. Um, and. I joined because I wanted to support the party and I really believed that it was the party that would um, speak up, speak up for the people, speak up for the planet. And I felt that by joining and showing my support and donating money that I could, um, I could go about my life and leave it to them. Um, and I think, uh, I think looking back now that was a mistake and I should have got involved sooner. That really works, actually. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> but I won't say that I have the answers either. So, I think you've covered your biggest concern. You think the Green Party to become new, too middle of the road? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that, that James Shaw deliberately set out on a strategy of, of be, making the Green Party what he called sort of more, um, you know, more of a safe pair of hands, more conventional, less, less risky in the eyes of the public. And in doing that, he has moved the party to the right. And I think that's really detrimental, not only to the party, but to the people of New Zealand. Because when we go for Labour support, then who do they, where do they go to, to make up that support? Will they move towards national supporters? Where does national move to? Will they move towards ACT supporters? So by, by taking on the strategy, we're actually moving the whole political spectrum to the right. Now, there's a million um, um, voters who don't turn out on our elections currently. Those are the people we should be going for, the, the, the disenfranchised, the poor and working people, the, the environmental activists who feel that nobody's standing up for them. Those are the people who I would like for us to target. Not only is there, are there a lot of votes to be gained there, but there are also it means that we're bringing the whole political spectrum across with us to the left because if we're moving that way, then then we're, we're encouraging those other parties to move in, move in our direction rather than the whole spectrum going towards the right, which is what's happened over the last 30 years. On your pad- podcast, you mentioned uh, the spirituality and in relation, may have been in relation to the Extinction uh, Rebellion. Are you involved in the Extinction Rebellion? Also, how do you see spirituality in a time of climate crisis? Thanks. Uh, probably the Muslim the greatest crisis we've faced uh, since certainly since the modern age. Thanks. That's a big question. I I am involved with Extinction Rebellion. I was lucky enough to participate in their blocking of the Colgate coal mine um, outside of um, Christchurch. Now, that coal mine, the Bathurst Resources, the mining company, was aiming to um, increase their take of coal from that mine, but they'd already been taking five times the amount that they were allowed. Now, rather than locking up the CEO of Bathurst Resources for that theft, um, myself and other protesters were instead arrested. Um, We were later released without charge um, and and since that that was a pivotal moment for me and, and I've been involved here locally in Dunedin we have a, a coal train that goes through our town carrying 500 tons of coal a day that that equates to a thousand tons of carbon dioxide or another way to look at it is a theft of 700 um, tons of oxygen from the air um, now the, in terms of the spiritual side this has been a real journey for me because you know I'm not uh, a I'm not a religious person but I have always felt that that I have a spiritual side and I think that if there were a God to me it would be in in the natural world around us that's where I see it I see it in the trees and the insects I love to just sit on my on my porch and just watch the bees or watch the the animals that the you know the cat or the dog or or whatever is around me and and that that fills me with joy um in in my journey in this work, I've started to ask myself a question, which is the serenity prayer. Um, some, some of our listeners may know it. It's, um, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I guess that, to me, has been my connection with the spiritual side of this journey, and that's really solidified for me a moral obligation um, to make that decision because it really makes you ask yourself, well, well, what is the difference? What are the things I can change and what are the things I can't? So I've, to relate that, I've, I've had this metaphor in my mind. The tree doesn't know how tall it is. It just knows where the sun is and it grows to the sun. And that's been my guiding principle is, um, you know, it's not, it's, not, it's not up for me to be so arrogant as to decide what I can change. It's up to me to go for it, to try and change the things I can. Were you surprised... Um to learn that we're actually using more coal for energy than we were 
two years ago? To an extent, yeah. Um, although when you hear about um, uh, when you hear news reports of things like Meridian deliberately spilling um, uh, water in order to um, reduce their their supply, then it's not perhaps not so surprising. It's a it, you know it's a it's partly to do with our consumption of large amounts of energy. We really need to get that down. But it's also partly to do with a very broken energy. Um, uh, energy market that we have now not not everyone may know this, but the spot price of energy changes of electricity changes um, with the whatever the highest price is so when there is only water being used it 's a very low spot price for electricity when coal gets turned on. Everybody gets paid the spot price for coal. That means the water generators actually get the coal price. So it's in their interest to keep Huntley open. It's in their interest for for us to keep burning coal. Then the actually the economic system of private ownership of power by um, stockholders and CEOs actually may encourage the use of coal. Absolutely, and it's I mean one one is the pricing mechanism that we have that ought to be reformed, but also the the sell off of our energy supply was such a a terrible move and, and such a betrayal of the people of this country. You know, the earlier generations did the work to create those resources for us to ensure we'd have energy, we'd have electricity. Yes, there was a price on it, but that was a way of ensuring a fair distribution of that electricity. Now, when we've moved this into private ownership, the incentives are very different. I understand that um, the... Um Business community pays less for energy now, and the small consumer absolutely I mean, pays much more. When you think about the um, the, the savings that uh, TY Point get, it seems bizarre to me that we have an electricity generation system which is there for the people. I mean, everything that TY Point creates is meant to be a product for individual people. It all comes down to the individual person at the end of the day that that is here, that the people in our society, that we that these services are there to, to um, provide for, to what cater about for. the collective good of the people? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. It's, Can you actually have a rational energy plan based on private enterprise and the the market. Well, I think it. I think it may be possible. My angle is that we reform the private energy market that, that's there, and and across the board within this capitalist system, we reform we reform it and and put our values on it, um, in the way that it stands. But I'm absolutely in favour of um, nationalising it, you know, as well. So you, you do both at once. Would you like to make a comment about you? Another uh, Green member is standing uh, for female co-leadership. Julian Gunter, you want to make any comment? Yeah, so this is the the um, the election where after uh, Matiri Ture left. Is yeah. that what you're talking about? Yeah. I think it was fantastic. We had two such incredible candidates for that role. I think we it shows it really shows the strength of the Green Party that we had two such great um, candidates. How many male Green members of Parliament are out there now? How many male Green members? Let me see. Three, I think. Is that right? Um, Ricardo, James, Tuiano. I think that's it. Okay. How many members of Green members of Parliament? Eleven, I believe. Okay. 
Does that disproportion make it more difficult if you wanted to change leadership? And you and you want to have co-leaders of, of um, one female and one male? I don't think so, no. Although there, there is also a discussion currently within the party to... Um, to change that balance. You know, some people are saying, well, why should it be one male, one female? Maybe it should be one tangata whenua, one, um, you know, uh, tangata tariti, or, or one Māori, one Pākehā. That could be one way of doing it too. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly open to there being different ways of, of dividing that up, as long as everybody has a, a place that they can stand for. So... Do you think that the major political parties are able to take the necessary radical remedial action to deal with housing crisis, poverty, the impending climate crisis, and still remain shackled to neoliberal to a neoliberal ideology? Can you please explain? Thanks. Yeah, no, I don't think they can, and I think the reason is because they're shackled to the the neoliberal ideology. Um, they're shackled to what's that? What's that mean? Well, well, that that means the the um, the changes that came in in the in the early nineteen eighties. They swept across the world. They came here under the Longy government, um, and. Um, you know Richard Preble, who then went on to form the ACT Party. They they came in the form of um, Reagan um, policies in America and of Margaret Thatcher in the UK, and they really were a radical change to the way that we saw our economy. And the the big the way that I would describe it is that it was a change from um, seeing seeing our economy as being yeah there's a free market there, but we have some a large number of publicly owned services that we provide for people. We have some costing um, mechanisms to to fairly distribute those resources and those services, but um, ultimately those things are there to provide a service and a good to people. Um, and the big change that they made was they said everything in that exists um, is owned and everything that exists uh, is worth money and if it's not worth money it doesn't exist so we don't account for many externalities now in our current system because of this radical change that they made at, at that time. Do you think this was a uh, accidental happening that these countries all did this at a similar, fairly similar time by accident or do you think the co- large financial corporations particularly and their think tanks push this. I absolutely think that these that these think tanks push this around the world. There's also some really interesting um, documentaries out there about the way that they push these reforms in other countries as well. So poorer countries they gave out a lot of credit to, and then they came in and upped the interest rates and then demanded... Um, you know, austerity measures to those countries in order to because they they were not able to then pay the higher interest on those um, on those loans. So they they loaned to developing countries. They loaned money quite deliberately um, to invest in infrastructure, and then they demanded um, austerity measures and changes to their economy, liberalisation of the market um, when those countries couldn't pay. And and that was a, quite a deliberate um, global um, you know. What tactic. kind of market would you like, and what kind of economic system? Well, I would like for us to change our economy to being one that is based on people's needs being met. So we see changing the way that we see things quite fundamentally. Um, There may still be, of course, I'm I'm in favour of a of a market of a of an open market, a well a well regulated 
um, open market, so not necessarily a free market, but um, the idea of capitalism itself is really a system of governance. It's that it's the, those who own the stuff, the money and the assets and the resources get to make the decisions. And that's in, in quite stark opposition to um, democracy, in my opinion. So I'd like to see a, a, a democracy have more power, capitalism have less power, and us work on how we share those resources and share those services for the benefit of people, putting people first. Do you think that major political parties and their leaders should be able to verbalize their own ideological position? And how do you think James Shaw would comment on his ideology? Well, I, I wouldn't like to speak for him, although uh, when asked that same question, he's described himself as green. What does that mean? I mean, there are greens who are... I mean, there are people who are members of the National Party who say they're green, and they, they mean it. They think that their, their policies will save the earth and... Uh, look after the environment. Um, the former uh, member from uh, Nelson, I believe, was one of those. Right, yeah. Well, I guess people have different ideas of, of ways so of what doing does it. Green but mean? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I guess that would be a question for him, not me. Well, I mean, it's like if I was asked my ideology, I said I'm a, I believe in democracy, would that be enough? Mm. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I could describe myself for you. I'm a, I, I believe I'm a pragmatic egalitarian um, who, who believes in looking after the people and the planet. Okay. And, well, I'd probably ask you how you do that. Okay. That's, yeah, good question. Well, well first, about it's, being, it's about being real and about being honest. Um, currently, our, our planet is on its way. You know, we are, we are destroying this planet. We're consuming too much. We're abusing it. We're destroying the natural world, the, the um, air, land, um, fresh water, and sea. Uh, we're degrading. And the natural world, the, the, the life in the world, the you know, plants and animals that live there are being destroyed m- massively, very quickly. And, you know, so we need to be honest about what we're doing there and, and how that's happening, and we need to turn it around. I see the reason that those things are being a, are able to happen is because of not only neoliberal capitalism, but a whole array of, of causes that are interlocked, interlinked, and intersectionally. Um, the name that I would give those those various causes would be, it's hard to find a single name for them. I thought the patriarchy, I, I'd call them the machine. And to me, the machine is the... Uh, neoliberal capitalism, the patriarchy, systemic racism, um, and uh, um, misogyny and, and sexism. Um, it's, it's dishonouring of tetariti. It's uh, a whole range of things that if we if we were to acknowledge those things and be honest about those things, we couldn't continue with the um, actions that we take. Isn't it a way of viewing the world as something to be used? The world and people as something to be used? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you had a a Jewish philosopher that talked about that, Martin Buber, said you can look at the world as, and even things as something that's alive and you relate to, or you look at it as just an object to be used, including people. Mm, mm. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, the things, the, the natural world around us has intrinsic value, not just monetary value, not just, and not just even, even outside of monetary value, not just utility to humans. You know? The problem is that people that sometimes have these utilitarian values, they also have the same values toward 
animals and, and other human beings. Mm. How bad do you think it'll get if we don't change? Well, the sky's the limit. I mean, what we're looking at at the moment on the current trajectory we're on is for, um, I think it's about two, me- two metres sea level rise by 2050. Um, that's going to put um, island nations like Tuvalu underwater by 2050. Um, that, that, to me, relates to that intersectionality I was talking about because mm-hmm. if we were not um, okay with systemic racism, if we would acknowledge that, that our consumption is, is a form of, of racism against those people, then we would mm-hmm. we would say, oh, well, I'm, oh, let's get rid of our cars right now. We need to make changes right now. We need, we need drastic changes right now in order to cut those emissions, in order to do what's morally right. Are mammals, are large mammals going to be able to survive this, including humans in a meaningful form, way? Not on, not on, continue. Yeah, not on the trajectory that we're on. I don't. I believe there will be. I believe we're we're looking at the beginnings of the um, collapse of ecology. We're seeing that around us now with um, wildfires raging across the world, with mass floods, and um, you know I believe that we won't see human civilization continue in the form that it's in now if if we continue on the track that we're on now honestly we don't know how bad it could get the sky's the limit um by 2100 we could be looking at seven meters of sea level rise because once those big blocks of ice and greenland it's the heat yes yes i mean there's i mean you've seen this in the northwest of the yeah that's where people least expected it and, and this is just the beginnings of it. This is just the, the beginnings of things that we're seeing. I mean, there's a, there's a wet bulb temperature, which is uh, around 35 degrees. So if you have 35 degrees at 100% humidity, then you've got eight hours to live, basically. And, and if that happens somewhere in the world, it doesn't need to, it doesn't need to happen for very long. It would, it would kill a lot of people. And, and that's the track that we're on right now. That's where we're, that's where we're heading. And I, I hate to be talking about the doom and gloom side of things. You know, and I believe there's a lot of great things we can do Should the to avoid this. have been talking about this sooner in a way, more openly? Yeah, I think so. I think that, there's, that part, of this, this, um, part of this system that we're in, I think, infects our own minds, colonizes our minds, and, and, and leads us towards compartmentalization of, of thinking. So you have scientists that are really... Um, knowledgeable in a certain area but they sort of comp- from from the interviews and talks that i've seen them give they compartmentalize that their, their work from their life so they say in my life i'm really terrified but in my work this is the situation I, and my job is just to um you know with no emotion put it down you know write down what what's happening so that's, that's a bit of a problem you mentioned you wanted to play a song so now might be a good oh. time to have a song and a bit of a rest after this <laughs> great thank you yeah so This is I Want You to Love Me by Fiona Apple. Next year 
Well, that was... Um... That was uh, I Want You to Love Me by Fiona Apple. And um, I just... It's a song I've loved for a long, long time. It came out um, during lockdown uh, with her new album, Fetch the Bolt Cutters. And whenever I hear it, I know that it's a love song, really, but whenever I hear it, 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 it feels to me like I'm hearing the earth uh, singing to me. Okay, thanks for that. We're talking with James Cockle who is standing for the co-leadership of the Green Party in the next um, assembly or annual meeting. Mm. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz 
and then you can go to community or chaos and then you go to and you're there actually what you've mentioned the purpose of the economy you want, you want to say anything more about that yeah, well, I, I just think that the, the purpose of the economy ought to be to, to um, facilitate a way to distribute the, the wealth and resources of our society in a fair way. I, I'd I put it that simply. Then the way that we go about doing that, well, there's many, many great ideas for how we can do that. But I'd, I'd say that many people would agree that currently that's not happening. Okay, I'm going to... I've just finished... My wife has actually pointed out a, a book... I loaned her called Pravda. It's about uh, Eastern Europe and Russia and the oligarchies. Mm-hmm. And the last interview is with a, of an oligarch who's moved to Europe from Russia. And he predicts the crack up of Europe, the end of Europe, the end of the euro. And what he says, um, I will. Europe is really, was it really another Lionel movement, a threshold of a new age? No, I'm not joking, insisted Dimitri. My money is now in land and sheeps. Sheeps, I repeated. In Russia, I'd heard rumors of an unnamed oligarchs buying vast tracts of Siberian forest. One was said to have a Acquired a retired Soviet missile silo and converted it, in, converted it into a hardened bolt hole. Likewise, a few hundred wealthy Americans, including hedge fund managers and dot-com executives, had bankrolled extreme makeovers in Atlas missile silos in Kansas and Wyoming. But I couldn't imagine any of them linked to sheep farms. I won't live in a hole. I will go away for sure. Where? New Zealand, answered Dimitri lowering his voice. I have a Learjet on standby. You'll need a pilot. Vasa is a pilot. Dimitri explained that in common with more than a thousand foreigners over the past decade, he'd purchased New Zealand residency. The process was easy enough, especially if one was willing to drop a couple of million into a hundred-acre South Island property. Now, what do you think about that? Mm, well, it's a predictable result of the policies that we've seen over the last decades, isn't it? I mean, well, should be should people actually be able to buy residency, permanent residency, or citizenship in New Zealand? No, I don't believe so. And, and uh, should immigration be should it be based on both the needs of the country and the needs of the Immigrants, people that really need to immigrate. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it should be it should be based on the needs of both of both sides, and also should be based on the ability of us to 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 um, facilitate, you know, to to accommodate um, people as well. And we, we need to make room and make um, you know build the resources and, and the infrastructure and things that we need to accommodate um, more people. We're going to be need, we're going to be seeing um, more people wanting to move here. But yeah, the, the the idea that these billionaires and millionaires can just come in and buy up land, I mean, 
you know, in talking about the economy that we were just touching on earlier, we can see that this capitalist economy doesn't work for us because if it works the way that it says on the tin, you know, if, the, if it works the way that people say that the, that it should work, that the, the right wing say that it should work, then the richest people in the world would be the most um, virtuous people in the world. But we know that that's not the case. Since I announced my run, we've seen mass floods and wildfires across the world. And during that same time, we've seen three billionaires decide that they're going to go to space for fun. Um, and the, the, this example of the, the farms being bought up, we can see that happening around the South Island, and that's really pushing us towards the the, um, the unsustainable farming practices. Because you know, when when these big um, rich people buy up these lands, then the pro- the land values go up. Farmers that buy mm. land um, have huge mortgages they have to pay, so they're forced to dump this um, phosphate fertilizer on the land. Do you think they'll, if they arrive, they'll like? Uh political instincts and political yearning for political power? Well, it's, yeah, that's very possible. Um, what, what do you mean when you're talking about downshifting the economy? And how would you explain that to people who can't afford to pay their rent and find it difficult to put food on the table for their families? I'd explain it by um, talking about waste and talking about a, a way that we can reduce waste and ensure that everybody's looked after at the same time. Um, so I know that for people that are really struggling to, to pay their rent and put food on the table, that is, you know, it, when we when we talk about environmental um, action, it seems a bit foreign to them, you know, especially if we're talking about um, doing things that seem outside of their reach, you know. I, I've heard and spoken with people who are frustrated when they hear about this um, EV, um, you know, rebates scheme, which is... Ha- which is affecting the the wealthy people who can afford to buy a new petrol car and the wealthy people who can afford to buy an EV and and then they're thinking well why am I I'm at the <coughs> at the school where I work there's still children turning up barefoot and hungry you know so it doesn't seem to match up so when I talk about the the downshift that we require I'd say that we need to make we, that in the downshift we're going to save you money and we're going to make it much easier for you to for you to do all those things you need to do we're going to make sure that our um, homes are really well insulated so that you don't pay as much for your power, and that benefits everybody. You know, We're going to make sure that there's a really good public transport system and reduce the costs and make that free so that your transportation costs have dropped right down um, so that we're going to do the sorts of things. That, and, and, of course, we need to reduce. I mean, the big one for people in poverty is housing costs. That's the huge cost that they're paying. And I know people that are now have got such a small proportion of the, of the money left over for all their other expenses. Uh, we really need to be talking about that with people, that, that the downshift that we need will go hand-in-hand hand with supporting us all. How are we going to pay for it? Well, there's many ways to pay for it. I mean, you can you can increase taxes, and you can increase taxes on, um, you know, high income, um, wealth, um, speculation. But you can also have um, situations where you're paying for it through those mechanisms, so using the carrot and the stick. So um, zero waste, for example. Well, we could pay for that easily by ensuring that the companies that produce the waste pay for it. You know, so that all the packaging that, that that we all throw away right at the moment, and we know a lot of it isn't actually even recycled anyway. We we collect mm. that, we sort it, we deal with it, we process yeah. it, and we charge them for that price. They, yeah, they pay for that. The Ty points a gross example of that. Mm. Mm. And look at the waste that's being left behind. I mean, they have an obligation to clean that up. Do you think that... How urgent is the time frame for you? Well, 
I'd like to compare it to the Climate Change Commission report and their, their time frame. So they're, they're looking at uh, some reductions by 2050. They've got some budgets, 2030, then, then again at 2050. And they're looking at a 7% reduction by um, 2025. I think that that's nowhere near ambitious enough. Um, how urgent is it? Yesterday. You know, 10 years ago, 30 years ago is how urgent it is. But so now the, the situation that we're in right now, we need to do everything that we can as fast as we can and look after our people at the same time. Um, that means we need to, we can't, we can't have this philosophy that we are trying to um, make the changes that we need and also, um, you know, protect the economy because the economy is a subset of the natural world. It's not the other way around. You know, th these two things are not equally balanced. You know, the economy, we can, we can make changes and we can, we can make tweaks to that, that we can, it's got some elasticity in it. The, the natural world doesn't. The natural world has hard limits. We don't necessarily know what those limits are, but once we cross them, that's it, we're done. You know, so we cannot afford to be um, so blasé about it as we're being at the moment. Okay, I'm going to play another piece of music. Great. I 
Those Who Will Come from Sweet Lover by Simon Kerr. We're talking with uh, James Cockle, who's standing for co-leader of the Green Party in the next annual meeting. Now, <coughs> James, what do you th- think uh, the time frame... You said the time frame is very urgent as mm-hmm. far as climate change and yes. so on. Is it very realistic to expect the Green Party to be the dominant political party in the next election and be able to become the next government? Well, I certainly think it's what we should be aiming for because I don't believe that (coughs) if we don't give people something to vote for, then I don't think they're going to vote for us in the numbers that we need. Um, I I wouldn't say I'm a... You know, whether it's 2023, 2026, I'm not 100% sure. But yes, I do believe that it is absolutely possible for the Green Party to become the major party in Parliament. And the reason I think that is because um, the the reason th- people are starting to understand that the reason that Labour and the um, other parties are not capable of dealing with the real crises that we are facing at the moment in poverty and income and wealth inequality, um, housing, um, you know, climate uh, collapse and, and ecological, um, the ecological emergencies. The reason we, we're starting to realise that they're not capable of dealing with those is because they're stuck in a mindset. And this, in my view, is very similar to 1935 when the Labour government, the Labour Party first became the government. That was a situation we were in the middle of the Great Depression and the um, govern, government of the time didn't know how to deal with the Great Depression. They they didn't know what to do. The, the sun was still, still shining, the grass was still growing, and yet people in this country, due to solely economic reasons, were going starving and hungry and walking the land, looking for work. Um, the Labour government in 1935 stepped up and said, there's another way. And, it, and it, what it took is for them to break out of the ideology of the day. And I believe we're, we're in a very similar situation today where we have an ideology that we people deeply understand is destroying the planet and degrading and, and um, the people and harming the people. People, and um, but they don't they don't necessarily um, they don't necessarily realise why we're stuck in that, and it, it's down to us, the Greens, to articulate to them that to them, and then I, I believe that we're absolutely well positioned to then become the major party. As I say, will it be twenty twenty three? Will it be twenty twenty six? I'm not a hundred percent sure on the time frame. What the more conservative Greens? When I say conservative, I don't mean right wing. I don't mean I mean relatively compared to to you, for instance, or even myself. I would say is that um, it's really important to make sure that the Green uh, Party are strong enough so that Labour will have to depend on them to form the next government, that we don't have time to wait until we, we become the government. 
Well, I don't think that those two things are exclusive. You know, I think that I think that by going for it and by by presenting our vision of what New Zealand would look like under a green government, that's the way that we get the votes um, to cause Labour to need to rely on us. And I think that it's time for the strategy strategy of saying a vote for us is a vote for Labour, put us at the heart of a Labour government. It's time for that that strategy to change to being. We're the Green Party. This is how we want to do things. This is this is our vision. I think people are ready for that. Um, it also means upping our game in terms of our ground game, in terms of our um, you know electorate running for electorate seats as well. Um, so rather than just going for the one tick party vote, we need to start going for two tick campaigns in electorates where the local people feel that they've got the resources to do that. Anything else along that line? Um, no, but I'd love to. I'd love to tell you what, how, you know. I, I've talked a lot about the way that we need to express a vision of what New Zealand would look like under a green government, and I'd, I'd like to tell you a bit more about the way that I would um, aim to express that. Well, how do you see it, this visual visualization affecting the lives of ordinary people? Okay, great. So in in, an, in a normal day, <coughs> day for a normal person, this is, these are the things I think you'd notice. The first thing is you wake up, and, and the first thing you notice is you touch your nose, and it's not cold. You check your windows, and they're, they're dry. They're not wet because we've invested heavily in real, um, real energy savings and, and having warm, dry homes. Now, I know that that's something we promote right now, but even the standards that we have now are not, uh, would not achieve that currently. You know, people have, have got, are reaching that standard, but they're still, they're still not as warm and dry as they could be, as they should be. And part of the reason is we're understanding that this is, we're seeing the big picture, we're seeing how things are connected. So it's not just about um, helping that individual, although that's really good too, that we're saving um, hospital costs and health costs, but we're actually um, saving energy. And it's not just about the monetary value, it's about the reduction in, in consumption of that energy. So that's the first thing they notice. The next thing they go out to get some breakfast, and there's plenty of food in the cupboards because we've reduced the cost of housing so that there's food left over to, there's money left over to buy food for their families. They might go out to head down to work and it's rubbish day, so they put the rubbish out. The, they don't have to worry about what all of the, um, you know, sorting the recycling anymore because all the packaging goes in one place. There's zero waste, and though that, that trash is, that's been the, the companies that produce that rubbish are charged for it, so it's all dealt with. And that means that those companies are starting to make things in more um, refillable packaging and, and more um, biodegradable. There's also a compost bin that goes out, and that gets re-delivered just locally to your local community gardens. You might then wander down the road to head to work, and you might see that at my place there's a there's a derelict house just up the road. Well, when I walk down and under the green government, there's actually a team of people um, doing up that home because we understand that it's not okay for a landowner to sit on a derelict home uh, watching it go up in value. The only reason it can go up in value is because we provide the roads, we provide the footpath, we provide the water and the electricity um, that goes past that door. So it's not acceptable to have a, that derelict house sitting there going up in value. We've, we in- insist that that landowner, that that homeowner does the place up or we participate as a government in providing in providing that, that service. We get that place done up, we get it up to code and we get people living there. Then I've, I'm, I'm still on my way down to work. I get to the road. There's hardly any traffic on the road, almost none, about 20%, 80% drop in the number of amount of traffic on the road um, because we've understood that we need a massive mode shift in order to reduce our consumption. Um, so there might be still be um, mobility um, vehicles that for people that need to have extra mobility 
disability needs. There might be <coughs> tradies going past that are going to get to their appointments bang on time, and we're really pleased to see that they're going to get there on time, and that's saving us all money. And the, my bus, when it arrives, it arrives bang on time as well because it's not sitting in traffic. So we know that by doing that, we've saved a billion dollars a year that we spend in congestion costs. We've saved the four and a half billion that we spend currently in um, car accidents and vehicle um, motor accidents and of course we've saved all those lives as well so we're really pleased about that and that means that you know that's a much lower cost overall cost of um, operation um, I go to work and I have really good um, workers rights and I have a, a good day's work for a good day's pay and, and we're able to unionise and the workers at, our, at my work are able to participate in decision making at that workplace I get home and as I'm entering my home I hear a couple of a couple of fellas next door having an argument and one's you know one One's the next door neighbour and one's the next up for them, and one's saying, "Oh, you've been you've been flirting my, with my wife," and the other one says, "No, no, don't be silly. We're just fr- we're just friends." And I have a little laugh to myself because it reminds me that the future that we're in right now is absolutely possible. It's not a utopian dream world. It's absolutely doable if we decide that that's what we want. I check my mailbox. There's a flyer there for the community gardens. There's going to be a meeting next week to decide what's going to be growing this season, and I'm really pleased. I'm going to go along to that meeting and have my voice heard because we have local governance of of local assets so that we're able to go and have direct participation and direct control of some of our local assets in my community. I get in and I make my family some dinner. Well, most of the food that's in my um, cupboards is is locally um, sourced and most of it is plant-based um, it's it's um, it's enhanced from the food from my own garden and from the community garden that I mentioned earlier but um, at, and there is much less meat and dairy because we are doing regenerative agriculture and we're understanding that we need to pay the true cost of those activities which does mean that there's less of those things but there's plenty of really good healthy um, fruit and veg there for us to eat and, and legumes and all those good plant-based things so I make up the meal for my family and we do what we love to do which is sit down and watch um, TV and we've just bought a brand new TV a couple of weeks ago well it's not actually brand new it's been refurbished, someone else threw it out it was um, all, it was taken apart, the broken part was you know, replaced and put back in and then it was done up and put back on the shelf in the shop and we, we went and bought it because we understand that all our appliances need to be um, serviceable and repairable um, and so it's not the biggest um, you know, 60 inch HD, super HD 4K or anything like that but what's more important to us is what's on that television and we're investing heavily in broadcasting we have great local kiwi comedies dramas investigative journalism and children's programming um, and and so we sit down and we enjoy a really funny great kiwi comedy that allows us to reflect on our society while we're eating our our beautiful dinner that we've made from our you know locally sourced goods that's the kind of future that's the day in an average life in my view um, you know that's one one version of the story coming from my particular perspective as a middle-aged middle-class privileged Pakia male um, I'd love to hear more perspectives on this story but that's the kind of story I think we need to be sharing and talking about as a future that's absolutely possible if I'm not a if I, if I'm not a middle-class Pakia say I'm a a poor working class Pakeha, or maybe unemployed or working on the minimum wage. <clears throat> How do I get all, get all this, and will it affect me? And will I be paid a decent wage, and will I be able to s- have my kids go to the local school and stay in that school for the entire time with that school and not have to move because they can't afford the rent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you would be, you would 
that I, I feel that this story applies to you too. You, we've reduced your living costs and we've brought in better standards for rental and, and um, rent-to-buy situations so that people can put down roots in their local community. They're not going to be asked to move on. I mean, I'm from Auckland and there was a street up the road from us, Madeline Avenue, and it was called Mad Ave um, for short, and it had a lot of state housing on it. And it was really despicable when they went and they tore down all the state houses. They sold them all off under the national government and then they, um, I think it was under national, unless it was, unless it was the earlier Labour, I'm not sure. And then they even even went so far as to change the name of the street to Mount Taylor Drive, you know. And I thought that was absolutely despicable that they did that. And that's that's not, you know, that's the sort of thing we'd we'd stop from happening. Much more services being provided to people to people directly as well. So, you know, lower lower costs of rent, food availability, transportation free or very low cost so that you're able to get around. And that equalises things too. It means that it's not just car drivers that can get from place to place. Elderly, young people, they have the right to travel as well. You know, so I think it would be... I'd hope that people hearing that story who are from that kind of background would would see the potential in it and see that it would improve their lives as well. You think you can make them believe the story? Oh, well, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's. I don't think it's that far cry from where we are. If we just had the belief in it, and we just had the 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 decision to make to go in that direction, we could make it happen. I mean, you'd probably get a lot of opposition. For instance, they've had law reform about uh, the access to alcohol, and the reason we haven't done much about that is because of the the alcohol lobby. And the same thing with uh, selling sweets in schools. It's because of the lobby that that. So, can we go past the uh, power privilege? Well, we need we need to be able to call out those lobby groups and, and call them out both when they're um, when they're using propaganda across all media platforms and when they're using when the media is using their um, you know talking points um, on us. We we need to have the guts to stand up and call them out, and that's something that I think we need a leader who's willing to do that is to is to call out that that stuff. We we know that it's happening. People are starting to get wise to it. Um, so yeah, they are powerful, but I think we can stand up Should to them. Should politics be even less? Dependent on uh, wealth and uh, donations from uh, interest groups. Yeah, yeah, it should. Yeah. How would you do that? Well, I think that there's there's um, some, you know, there there are proposals already out there to have a, a fair distribution of government, you know, funds to political parties to campaign, and they're capped at that level, um, and that's that's based on their support at the time. I think that would be a fairer way to do it because if you look at the numbers... Should the amount of money you can give to politicians, should that be limited more drastically? Yeah, I think it should be limited and I think it should there should also be more transparent. Okay. Um, so are these your hopes for New Zealand? Yeah. Okay, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks so much. So um, anyone that would like to support me out there, remember tomorrow night, Wednesday night at 7.30 at Community House is the Green Party um, the Green Party meeting to instruct our delegates. So if you'd like to be involved, check your party membership, make sure it's up to date, and come on down to Community House opposite uh, Countdown. Okay, thank you. Thanks. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.